Welcome to the podcast of Follow Baptist Church. Our vision and mission is to follow Jesus in our community for His glory. We hope and pray that you are blessed, challenged and inspired by this message. For more information on Follow Church, you can visit our website at www.followchurch.com.au. Today's Bible reading is Genesis chapter 19. The two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening, and Lot was sitting in the gateway of the city. When he saw them, he got up to meet them and bowed down with his face to the ground. My lords, he said, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet and spend the night and then go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered, we will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and entered his house. He prepared a meal for them, baking bread without yeast, and they ate. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him. And he said, no, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you and you can do what you like with them. But don't do anything to these men for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner, and now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot and moved forward to break down the door. But the men inside reached out and pulled Lot back into the house and shut the door. Then they struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness so that they could not find the door. The two men said to Lot, Do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? Get them out of here, because we are going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against this place, against its people, is so great that he has sent us to destroy it. So Lot went out and spoke to his sons-in-law, who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place, because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his sons-in-law thought he was joking. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. When he hesitated, the men grasped his hand and the hands of his wife and his two daughters and led them safely out of the city, for the Lord was merciful to them. As soon as they had brought them out, one of them said, Flee for your lives. Don't look back and don't stop anywhere in the plain. Flee to the mountains or you will be swept away. But Lod said, But Lot said to them, No, my lords, please. Your servant has found favor in your eyes, and you have shown great kindness to me in sparing my life. But I can't flee to the mountains. This disaster will overtake me, and I'll die. Look, here is a town near enough to run to, and it is small. Let me flee to it. It is very small, isn't it? Then my life will be spared. He said to him, Very well, I will grant this request too. I will not overthrow the town you speak of. But flee there quickly, because I cannot do anything until you reach it. That is why the town was called Zoar. By the time Lot reached Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of the heavens. 
Thus, he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he had stood before the Lord. He looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward all the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham, and he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. Lot and his two daughters left Zoar and settled in the mountains, for he was afraid to stay in Zoar. He and his two daughters lived in a cave. One day the older daughter said to the younger, Our father is old and there is no man around here to give us children, as is the custom all over the earth. Let's get our father to drink wine and then sleep with him and preserve our family line through our father. That night they got their father to drink wine and the older daughter went in and slept with him. He was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. The next day the older daughter said to the younger, Last night I slept with my father. Let's get him to drink wine again tonight and you can go in and sleep with him so we can preserve our family line through our father. So they got their father to drink wine that night also, and the younger daughter went in and slept with him. Again, he was not aware of it when she lay down or when she got up. So both of Lot's daughters became pregnant by their father. The older daughter had a son, and she named him Moab. He is the father of the Moabites of today. The younger daughter also had a son, and she named him Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites of today. Thank you, Nathan. Good morning, everyone. It's been a great day in church so far today and looking forward to opening up the Bible today and teaching through what's a fairly uh, in-depth and complicated passage. Uh, who's enjoying, who enjoyed the public holiday on Monday? It's good, isn't it, to have a public holiday? It feels like a month ago, doesn't it? But it was only a few days ago and had a public holiday. We had a great day as a family. We decided to go out and uh, we woke up in the morning, told the kids that we were going out for a surprise. And the reason we did that is for two reasons. First of all, Lenny loves surprises. And so he was incredibly excited trying to work out what the surprise was. And he'd be flapping his hands and getting all worked up about the surprise. And so he was really stoked. And the other reason was that we were going to the museum. And if we told the girls we were going to the museum, they wouldn't want to go. And so we told them it was a surprise. And then when we pulled into the car park, surprise, we're at the museum. And everyone had a great day. But we really enjoyed the museum, learnt lots of stuff, and um, I think the girls were scared they might learn something, but I think they did, and uh, it was a really good day. Um, when we finished at the museum, we went to McDonald's, so the day's getting better and better as we go along, and then we got home in time to watch some of the football, so it was almost like the perfect day, right? <laughs> go out with the family, have dinner at Macca's, and then watch the footy. And I watched, and the D's won, I watched part of the uh, Queen's birthday football match between Melbourne and Collingwood, and a Melbourne supporter's already jumped in and stolen my thunder, but the D's won. But from the parts of the game I saw, it was a really good game. And it was really good because it had several significant shifts in momentum. And so in the first half, Collingwood uh, kicked away, they are up by about 28 points, and you sort of got the sense that they were a couple of goals away from icing the game. But in the second half, it was like a completely different game in the third quarter. I think Melbourne got a revved up at halftime, and they, they came out, and they fought right back, got themselves back into the game. In fact, by three-quarter time, they were leading by a point. I watched the whole last quarter, and it was a real typical arm wrestle. Every time Melbourne kicked away, Collingwood stormed back, and then Melbourne would kick away, and then Collingwood would storm back. And every time Collingwood got close, the team in red and blue 
and yellow, the Forex the players they had on the field, were able to hold them off <laughs> and, and win the game for the pies. And so it was a great game that was completely wrecked by those four people. But anyway, it's another story. Sorry, Jerome, if you wish, Jerome. Jerome's an umpire. He gets, a bit, he gets a bit upset about that, so sorry. But as I was pondering the game this week, I'm not a Collingwood supporter, but as I was pondering the game this weekend, particularly the momentum shifts within it, it got me thinking about the momentum shift we find ourselves in, in Christianity in the Western world. For hundreds of years, since Constantine declared Christianity to be the religion of the empire in around about 300 AD, um, Christians have sort of found themselves in the Western world at the centre of our society and at the centre of our culture. We've had a significant voice at the table and the Christian worldview has, by and large, been either accepted or at least respected by the vast majority of the general population. But in recent years, I don't know if you've felt it, but particularly the last couple of decades, there's been a massive shift in momentum. And the position of the church has shifted and swung the other way, and our influence has seemed to diminish as a result. Now, the problem is this, that I think many Christians haven't seemed to realise yet that things have shifted. And so they're still continuing to live and reach out to people like we are in the centre of, of our culture and like people actually care about what we say. But the truth is that it's shifted so much that that's no longer the case. Now, the Christians that have realised there's been a shift, they're so busy mourning the fact that we've lost power and authority that they're scrambling to get back into that position of power and authority. And I think, for me, Christendom is not something to mourn the loss of. And we have a chance to embrace our opportunities for mission. Because if you look at the book of Acts and you see the Christian church, they didn't find themselves in the centre of society. They found themselves on the fringe, on the margin, not received, but rejected. And yet God took a group of people and he turned the world upside down from the margins. And for us as Christians, I think it presents a great opportunity to reimagine what mission might look like in our community now that the culture has shifted and we're no longer readily listened to and persecution starts to increase. We have an opportunity to reimagine mission to understand that God may have placed us in this region and beyond, not just to stem the tide, to, to cause a halt on the shift away from God, but to help lead people back to him. What an exciting opportunity we have. Today's passage, as we arrive in Genesis chapter 19, highlights why this is so critically urgent. It's titled, Sodom and Gomorrah Destroyed. It doesn't sound really cheery for a Sunday morning, does it? But that's the title of the passage today. And it's a story, a tragic story, of God's judgment on a wicked, unrepentant city. And as we go through chapter 19, we get a glimpse of how far they had fallen. But before that, I want to recap a little to get us up to speed with how they got there. We were first introduced to the city of Sodom all the way back in Genesis chapter 13. And if you remember the story, Abram and Lot had been traveling together and their men weren't getting along. And because there was friction and disunity, Abraham or Abram made a decision that they would go their separate ways. Now, even though Abram was the one who'd been chosen and called by God, he got these promises of incredible blessing, he made the gracious decision to say to Lot, his nephew, that you can choose whatever land you want. And so Lot kind of looked right around the 360-degree view. And if you remember the sermon, you might remember that Lot was a little bit like Pig the Pug. And he decided to be greedy and selfish. And he said, mine, 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 mine. And he looked to the land that looked the best, the most lush land. And he said, I'm going there. 
And Abram said, if you go to the right, I'll go to the left. If you go to the left, I'll go to the right. And so he went that direction and Abram was literally left with the leftovers. And it says in that passage that Lot chose to settle near Sodom, which in chapter 13, verse 13, we see that that city is described as having a whole bunch of people who were wicked and sinning greatly against the Lord. Now, as we flicked over the page to chapter 14, when Abram has to go and rescue Lot the first time, he was no longer living near Sodom, but we find out now in chapter 14 that he's living right in Sodom. By this stage, he has stepped right into that wicked city that was rebelling against God. And in the first verse of today's chapter, it says that Lot was sitting in the gateway of that same city. Now, a gateway in ancient times is really the equivalent of our city squares, It's a place that's buzzing, there's activity, there's people everywhere, there's stuff happening. And in their culture, it was a place of trading as well. And so a whole bunch of people would be sitting around in tables selling a whole bunch of stuff. And the fact that Lot was sitting there indicates that he was probably one of those traders. In other words, Lot hadn't just been accepted by this wicked city, but he now fully immersed himself in its way of life, and he probably doesn't even realise it. We talked about this a few weeks ago. The problem with sin is this, that if you keep putting yourself near it, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? You're going to step right into it. If you keep putting yourself in temptation's way, you're going to end up falling into sin. If you keep stretching the truth, it won't be long before you're consistently lying. If you keep giving into lust, it won't be long before you're addicted to clicking on the links or even worse. If you keep failing to take responsibility for your actions, you'll soon be in full-on denial, blaming everyone else. If you can't forgive, you'll end up in bitterness and rage. If you consistently sleep in on a Sunday morning or come to church once a month, it won't be long before you're out of fellowship altogether. If you keep hanging out with bad company, it won't be long until it corrupts your character. We need to understand we have a devil that prowls around like a roaring lion and he's looking to devour you and me. He's got plans and plots and schemes to bring us down. But the Bible says that if we resist the devil, if we submit ourselves to God and we resist the devil, he will flee from us. And as we draw near to God, he will draw near to us. What a beautiful promise that is. If you feel distant from God, guess who stepped away? Step back into him. Draw close to God and he will draw close to you. And so what are the areas in your life and my life that we need to flee from? It's a challenging question. Sodom was a wicked city. And in this story, it's obvious for all to see how deep that sin goes. And for that reason, God was going to destroy the city in an act of divine judgment. And because of that, we see that Abram comes before God in conversation or prayer to plead for the city. And I love Abraham's prayer in chapter 18 that Pastor Dave preached a great message on last week. And the thing I love about it is this, that he knows how wicked the city is, and yet he pleads for them. He pleads for them that they would be saved. It's persistent and courageous prayer. You might remember the questions he asked God. Will you sweep away the righteous with the wicked? What if there's just 50 people? Will you wipe out the city or will you save it for those 50? What if there are 45? What if there are 40? And then you keep saying things like, Lord, don't get angry, but but what if there was 30? Look, I'm going to come again. Don't get angry, but what if there's 20? Uh, Lord, don't get angry. By this stage, I was reading the passage. I was getting angry. It's like, just get to the point. And he says, what about 10? What if there are 10 people there? Would you spare the city if there was just 10? And the rest were wicked. And he said, for 10, I would spare the city. I don't know why he stopped at 10, but he stopped at 10. But what we see is persistent prayer, standing in the gap, pleading for a wicked city to be saved. 
It's no different for us today. Turn on the news tonight, you'll see news about terrorism and rape and murder and lying and stealing and suffering. And at the end of the bulletin, you'll get a little happy story about a puppy or something. But the rest of it, you'll just be immersed in the wickedness of the world and you'll see how far our world is not just stepping near sin, but it's settled right into it. And it's tragic as we look at the news each and every night, story after story. What a sad state that we're in. And the question that was bobbing around in my head this week is simply this. I wonder if we're as passionate about the loss as Abraham was. I wonder if we're pleading for our community. Are we on our knees for our family, for our family and our friends and people around us pleading that they would be saved, that they would come to know Jesus? Are we as passionate as Abraham was about the lost? I pray today that God would light a fire in our hearts. We sang it before, didn't we? That he'd light a fire in our hearts, that we would commit ourselves to do whatever it takes to share the gospel and lift Jesus high over this region. You know, a couple of weeks ago, I was driving to church. And in the short drive from my house to this place here, I drove past hundreds of houses full of thousands of people that were probably still asleep or going about their business without giving God a second thought. I got to the footy ground in Officer and I looked over to my left and it was just packed full of people, hundreds of people. And I kept driving to church. And you know what? It's so easy for us to get comfortable. You know, follow has grown significantly in a couple of years. I'm so thankful that you're here. I'm so thankful for what God's doing in our midst. But it's easy to get comfortable, isn't it? To pat ourselves on the back and say, oh, well, things are going pretty good. But it doesn't take a, a, just, a, just a little glimpse around us to realize that there are thousands of people that aren't in this building this morning. There are thousands of people that aren't gathering in another church to worship God today. There are thousands of people that are heading for an eternal destination without Jesus. And for that, that should be something that brings great perspective and motivation to our lives to go and share the good news of the gospel. Because if you're a Christian here today, you've been saved for a purpose. The purpose isn't to do comfy church on a Sunday although I enjoy doing that. It's not to get the golden ticket to heaven and then sit back in the armchair watching Netflix for the next 50 years. The call of God on your life is to tell people about the incredibly good news of Jesus. In the midst of the darkness and the brokenness, we have one hope, as Rowan said a moment ago, and that hope is Jesus. And you and I have been, we've got the privilege of being saved and called to be on the greatest mission we could ever be on. And my fear is this that we often forget that. Or if we're honest with ourselves, we just don't care enough about it sometimes. So I pray today that God would do something in our hearts, that he would light that fire again, because if we're going to be used by God to halt some of the momentum in our community and see people turn back to God, like Abraham, it needs to start with fervent, passionate prayer for people who are lost. Today at the AGM, we're going to share a vision video with some plans for the future. It's going to include things like new ministries and missions. It's going to include building a building and planting more churches in the southeast of Melbourne. And, and that's all great, exciting stuff. But let's not get distracted in the details. The end goal is the same, that we would see people come to know Jesus, that he would be glorified in everything we do, whether that's building a building, planting a church, starting a ministry. It's all for the same purpose. And so today, let's keep that in mind. My prayer is that the future growth of our church will be predominantly people who've come to know Jesus for the first time or that have been away for a long time and they've come back to him. 
I hope you join me in prayer with that vision and that dream and that hope that we would see so many people come to know him. Because if that kind of revival is going to happen, we're going to all need to play our part. And so I pray today that God would stir us up, grip our hearts, that we would remember that we only have one life to live. And there's no greater mission than the one we've been given by Christ. And the reason it's so urgent is highlighted, as I said before, in today's chapter. And if I could give you the big picture of this message in just one sentence, it would be this. And if you're a note taker, write this one down. Prayer and evangelism are urgent because sin ends up in judgment, but repentance brings people back into relationship with God. Let me say that again. Prayer and evangelism are urgent because sin ends up in judgment, but repentance brings people into relationship with God. As we read the passage today, the sin of Sodom was pretty horrific and it was pretty widespread. In chapter 18, you might remember last week, the Lord and two angels had appeared to Abraham and as the two angels left to check out Sodom, Abraham stayed with the Lord and pleaded his case for the city. And so the two angels go ahead and that brings us to the start of today's passage and they go to Sodom and they meet Abraham's nephew Lot at the gate. Now, by this stage, Lot's been in the city for quite some time, and he would know exactly how dangerous that city had become. It was a dangerous place. And when he meets these two men, it says, when he saw them, he got up to meet them. He bowed down with his face to the ground. He said, my lords, please turn aside to your servant's house. You can wash your feet, you can spend the night, and then you can go on your way early in the morning. No, they answered. We will spend the night in the square. But he insisted so strongly that they did go with him and they entered his house. You know, in their culture, hospitality was a massive thing. And it used to be for us as well, but it doesn't seem to be so much these days. Uh, Back in the day, if someone knocked on your door any time of day or night, you would go to the door and be like, wow, exciting, visitors, come on in. We've prepared some stuff just in case someone dropped in. These days, someone knocks on your door, it's considered rude, isn't it? Unannounced. Uh, Particularly, you know, at night, you don't know whether to open the door or go to the door or ring the cops. It's kind of like we've lost the art of hospitality. And this is one one thing about a Christian community that should set us apart, that we're called to be people who are brilliant at hospitality, that we should care for one another, that we should open up our lives to those that are downtrodden and poor and lost, that we should be the most hospitable people on earth, that people should look at you and I and our hospitality and say they must be a follower of Jesus and the reason I know it is the way they love one another and the way they love others as well. Hospitality is such an important thing in their culture. It was a massive thing. If you remember at the start of the last chapter, Abraham showed great hospitality to these same three men, the Lord and the three angels. And now Lot does the same. Now in their culture, when you took a guest into your home, it was usually expected that the commitment would last up to three days. Aren't you glad that when you open your door uh, to a guest, you're not committing to three days? You're committing to about five minutes probably, uh, maybe more. But when we open up our door, it's not quite the same. But their commitment would be up to three days. And the hospitality would include food and shelter. But it also included you taking responsibility for the safety and the well-being of your guests while they're under your roof. And so Lot settles them in. He prepares a meal. He's better than Abraham. Abraham just said, Sarah, cook us something. Lot went and prepared the meal himself. So he's a modern day man. That wasn't in my notes. They were just about to get ready for bed and there's a a knock on the door. Now, to their great relief, it wasn't the Jehovah's Witnesses. It wasn't an electricity provider. It wasn't even a solar panel company. Like, we've got 150,000 solar panels on our roof, but they still knock on our door. Would you like solar panels? 
We don't have any roof left. We can't have any more solar panels. But to their relief, it wasn't any of those people at their door, but the relief was short-lived when they realised that the house was completely surrounded by all the men from the city. And in verse 4, it says, All the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, Where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. Something worth noting here, and that is the extent of sin amongst the men. It says, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old. It seems that the sin and wickedness of the city had been passed from one generation to another. And if we contrast that to the previous chapter and what God had called Abraham to do, it's actually quite a profound contrast. In verse 18 of chapter 18, it says, Abraham will surely become a great and powerful nation. And all nations on earth will be blessed through him. Now, we heard that in Genesis 12. It was reaffirmed in Genesis chapter 15. But in verse 19, there's a new part now that we haven't heard before. And it says this, For I have chosen him so that he will direct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing what is right and what is just, so that the Lord will bring about for Abraham what he promised him. There's a great challenge for the dads here today as spiritual heads in your home and for the mums as well, together in cooperation as we parent our children. Because it's easy to get caught up with the everyday issues of life. It's even easy to get caught up with the work of ministry that we forget that our first place of ministry is in the home with our children. I pray that at Follow we would have a church full of spiritually strong and mature men who would take responsibility for raising children to the way of the Lord and that we would have a church full of godly, faithful, fruitful women role-modelling faith to their children as well. Because I don't know if you've noticed, but being a Christian is not getting any easier. And what it was like for us as Christians when we were young, when I was young, and what it's like for our kids is going to be a very, very different environment when it comes to our culture and their acceptance of Christianity. We have a great kids ministry here at Follow. They do a wonderful job and we seek to teach kids the truth of Scripture. But make no mistake this morning, the primary role of discipleship lays squarely at the feet of you as parents. And we can impact in this community, and that impact can be multiplied exponentially or it, be, or it can be crippled significantly, depending on how we disciple our children. And so it's this primary area of ministry, and it's going to require us as parents to be proactive and committed in discipleship because our, as our kids find themselves saturated in the culture of this world, they're going to need to see true discipleship in the decisions we make, in the priorities we keep, and in the lives we live. And so the question is, will we sit back, cross our fingers and hope God does a miracle in the heart of our kids? Or will we step up and raise a generation that will be the light in this community, this city, this nation and this world for years to come? That was a call on Abraham's life and it's a responsibility of ours as well. And this is where the city of Sodom had such a massive failure that the wickedness had just been passed down generation after generation. The city of Sodom had completely turned away from God because the sin of the fathers had passed down to their sons. And in verse 5, we see the total depravity of their hearts. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out so that we can have sex with them. What we're talking about here is homosexual rape, and they are determined to do it. In verse 6, Lot went outside to meet them, and he shut the door behind them. And he said, no, my friends. It's an interesting statement, isn't it? No, my friends. Don't do this wicked thing. Look, I have two daughters who have never slept with a man. Let me bring them out to you. You can do what you like with them, 
but don't do anything to these men, for they have come under the protection of my roof. Get out of our way, they replied. This fellow came here as a foreigner. Now he wants to play the judge. We'll treat you worse than them. They kept bringing pressure on Lot, and they moved towards the door to break it down, but the men inside reached out, and they pulled Lot back inside, and they shut the door. They then struck the men who were at the door of the house, young and old, with blindness. It's ironic, isn't it? Already spiritually blind, and now their physical state matches their spiritual condition. Their physical condition is so bad, they can't even find the front door. Sin of a city is so intense But I want you to notice in this passage that the sin in this story is not just an issue of those who don't follow God, but it's just as real for those who profess to. For a start, Lot offers up his daughters to protect his guests. Now, I completely understand that he feels the responsibility of his hospitality to care for these guests, but it doesn't matter what era or what culture you find yourself in, this is an outrageous offer. He's offering up his own precious daughters who as their father, it's his job to be protecting and loving and cherishing them. And he offers them up as sexual slaves to a violent mob outside the front door. Now, I have three daughters and I love them with all my heart. And I'm the first to admit that I'm very protective of them. And as I was reading this passage this week, my heart broke. And I thought, what kind of sinful depravity would get you to the point that you would even consider doing what Lot offered to do? Once again, we see the generational flow of sin and an ironic twist on the story. At the end of the chapter, we see those same daughters who he was going to have used and abused, using and abusing him by getting him drunk, raping him, so that they could get pregnant, giving birth to children who would end up leading wicked nations that oppose God for generations to come. It's pretty grotty stuff, isn't it? It's pretty clear to see how far this city had fallen. And so there's some very obvious sin in Lot, but there are some more subtle things in the passage that show that Lot and his family just don't take sin seriously. Verse 12, the two men said to Lot, do you have anyone else here, sons-in-law, sons or daughters, or anyone else in the city who belongs to you? It's interesting when Abraham was praying for the city that he stopped at 10. If there was just 10 people in the city, would you wipe it out for those 10? And I just wonder whether Lot's extended family numbered about 10. He says, if you've got those people, get them out of here because we're going to destroy this place. The outcry to the Lord against its people is so great that he sent us to destroy it. So Lot went outside, spoke to his sons-in-law who were pledged to marry his daughters. He said, hurry and get out of this place because the Lord is about to destroy the city. But his son-in-laws thought he was joking. Isn't it so true that the world so often sees sin as a joke? These people refused to listen. They remained in the city and they failed to leave their sin. It goes on in verse 15. With the coming of dawn, the angels urged Lot, saying, Hurry, take your wife and your two daughters who are here, or you will be swept away when the city is punished. Verse 16. When Lot hesitated. He's in the midst of this incredible destruction. The city is about to be wiped out. And yet he's so comfortable that he hesitates to the point where the angels have to grab his hand and the hands of his wife and two daughters and they lead them safely out of the city because it says the Lord was merciful to them. So here's Lot in the midst of devastating consequences of sin and even then he hesitates to leave. Sometimes we get so comfortable with the sin in our lives, don't we? So comfortable that we don't want to leave it. It's become who we are. It's become what we're used to. 
It's something that we even enjoy sometimes. And the thought of repenting and fleeing from that sin is so painful and so overwhelming and so uncomfortable that we place that sin above our relationship with God. But by God's mercy, the angels grabbed them by the hand and dragged them out of the city. Now, at this point, I want you to picture they're running for their lives. It's like a giant volcano. There's sulfur and lava, and it's surging after them, and they are running for the hills. They want to be safe. And the angel said, whatever you do, don't turn back. You don't have time. Just keep running. Flee from this wicked city. And now it's Lot's wife's turn to show that she doesn't show, see that sin is serious. She turned back, and she suffered the consequences. She turned back, and she was turned into a pillar of salt. It was the most dreadful account of assault and insult you could ever imagine. That was written in my notes. Just this morning, in pen. But it's a highlight so far. When we're fleeing sin, you know, the temptation is to go back, isn't it? The temptation is to go back to what's comfortable, but the end result is destruction in our lives. About six weeks ago, I was setting up down at the food van, and I noticed a young guy come off the train, walk across the path towards the van. He wasn't coming to the van, he was just walking past, and I recognised this young guy. I recognised him from a number of years ago at a different church I was pastoring at. Uh, his family were regulars at the church, a great family, but this young guy had found himself in a lot of trouble, and I visited him a few times in juvenile detention back at that stage of his life. And I saw this guy and I recognised him and I went over and I went to say hello and we had a great chat. And he told me that he'd continued to have struggles in life and particularly with um, drug addiction. But he said at this stage his life was going well. He was living with his parents now in Berwick and he was looking for a full-time job. And he asked me what I was up to and I told him about my family and the kids and all that exciting stuff. And then I told him that we'd planted a church a couple of years ago. And he seemed really keen on that. He's a really good drummer. And he said, could I come along and play the drums? And I said, well, come along first and, um, yeah, get to know people. And then that would be awesome. Um, And so we said our goodbyes. And it was a a great catch-up. And the next day, he sent me a message on Facebook. Uh, Let me read it to you this morning. He said, hey, mate, it was so good to see you. Uh, In brackets, I have to tell you this. After shaking your hand and saying hello, it felt real nice to be remembered. And I felt a good peace vibe, which was great. (laughs) Ha, ha. I've just been really struggling lately, and one of those struggles was finding some steady employment somewhere I can get to as I don't have a car at the moment. Uh, Not even five minutes after leaving you, I got a phone call with an offer to start a full-time job, which is literally five minutes away from home. I feel so blessed. (laughs) Ha ha, again. He said, you must carry some luck. It's like, no, no, it's Jesus. Um, You must carry some great luck with you, but thanks all the same. In brackets, sorry if that comes across weird. Uh, Oh, and I'd really like to attend a service. Where is your church? So I sent him a message back saying that I didn't think it was a coincidence that we'd caught up, that it was great to chat. And I sent him all the details for our service and then sent him the thumbs up. um, And then he sent me the thumbs up back. I've got the details. I'll be there. Last Friday, I went to his funeral. A couple of weeks after I saw him, I had a phone call from his sister letting me know that they found him dead in his bedroom from a drug overdose, 27 years of age. Talking about addiction, but it's very much the same as sin in our lives. When we're fleeing from sin, the temptations to laugh it off, to hesitate as we flee or to turn back to what's comfortable. But when we do it, it has devastating effects on our lives, sometimes in really obvious ways, like with that young man, but sometimes in subtle but equally as devastating ways in our own lives. Lot's wife turned back 
and suffer the consequences. And that's why I asked Rowan to do that song today because I love that little bridge that I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back as we fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith. Lot and his family just didn't take sin seriously enough. They settled near it. They found themselves in it and they didn't care enough about it. I want to finish by highlighting the judgment of God in this story. In verse 23, it says, By the time Lot reached Zor, or Zoar, the sun had risen over the land. Then the Lord rained down burning sulfur on Sodom and Gomorrah from the Lord out of heavens. Thus he overthrew those cities and the entire plain, destroying all those living in the cities and also the vegetation in the land. But Lot's wife looked back and she became a pillar of salt. Early the next morning, Abraham got up and returned to the place where he stood before the Lord pleading for that city. And he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah, toward the land of the plain, and he saw dense smoke rising from the land like smoke from a furnace. So when God destroyed the cities of the plain, he remembered Abraham. That prayer session, he remembered Abraham. And he brought Lot out of the catastrophe that overthrew the cities where Lot had lived. And when we read a passage like this, it's quite haunting. The judgment of God seems pretty swift and pretty brutal. A lot of people can't reconcile the God of the Old Testament in a passage like this and the God of the New Testament. They look at the judgment of God in the Old and they look at Jesus in the New and they can't possibly work out how does this all fit? How can God, who is love, express so magnificently at the cross through Christ's sacrificial death for sinners, possibly just wipe out a city like this? And they often come to the conclusion that he's a different God. The stories aren't true or that we're to ignore the Old Testament and simply focus on the God of the New Testament. But I want to tell you today, it's the same God yesterday, Sodom and Gomorrah. It's the same God today in Officer in 2017. It's the same God in the future. Same God who rules and reigns over all creation. The same God who created the heavens and the earth and sustains all things in his mighty hand. That same God still has a burning hatred of sin. It's a rebellion against him and it's destructive in our lives. He says, be holy as I am holy. Sin's no joke. It's not to be laughed at, ignored, downplayed, or returned to. Because the judgment day is coming, where that same God will judge once again. And most people are oblivious to it. But listen to what Jesus says. He says, about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving, up, giving in marriage. Up to the day Noah entered the ark, and they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. When judgment day comes, it's going to make Sodom and Gomorrah look like a trip to a lolly shop. There are so many passages about that day. Let me share one more. From Jesus' words. He says, So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It's not pleasant to preach about this sort of stuff, but Jesus talks about it nearly more than anything else in the New Testament. And when we hear about those people when Jesus returns, the reality is many of them are going to be our friends and our family and our community. The day Jesus returns will be the most glorious day for those who have put their faith in him, but for those who haven't, it'll be the worst day in human history. If you think that God no longer takes sin seriously, then consider some of these passages, but more to the point, look no further than the cross of Jesus Christ. Because on the cross, we find his son, his most precious possession, crushed 
and broken for our sin. That's how seriously God takes sin, that he would give up his own son for us to create a way out of that judgment day and into relationship with him. Sin is a serious problem in our suburb. It's a serious problem in our cities. It's a serious problem in our world. It's a serious problem in our hearts. And there's only one remedy, and that's Jesus. At the cross, he went through a living hell so you and I could avoid an eternal one. Our job is to tell the world that incredible news. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. The vision we have as a church is a bold one. It's going to take sacrifice, prayer, generosity, and faith. But everything we sow will be worth it to see people escape that judgment and spend eternity in the presence of God. I don't believe God wants us to only halt the momentum in our community, but I believe he's calling us to take ground for him. And so as we do it, empowered by his spirit, equipped by his word with a powerful gift of prayer, I pray that we would see people snatched from the kingdom of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light for God's glory. Let's pray. Lord, I just want to thank you so much for your word. I want to thank you so much for the things we learn in there. And some of the passages in scripture are so uplifting and and rosy and enjoyable and fun and yes, amen. And others are like the one we read today. They're, They're difficult to read. They're difficult to fathom. They're heartbreaking. They're challenging. They're convicting. And they're encouraging. Lord, I pray that all those things would happen to us today. It would open up our hearts and our minds to receive your word and to realize that we live in a very similar situation with a community full of people who don't know Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would shake us out of any apathy we may have, that you would shake us out of any fear we may have, that you would fill us afresh with your Holy Spirit, that we would be bold and courageous, that we would reach this community and we'd do it with gentleness and respect. Lord, I pray that people would see us and they wouldn't see us, but they'd see you living in us, whether it's at the food van, whether it's in our workplace, whether it's with our family, whether it's in our friendship circle, whether it's in our schools or universities. Lord, you have called us the light of the world. And so I pray that we'd take that seriously. We'd see what a great privilege it is to be in you and what a great responsibility it has to share you with those that don't know you. Just while every head is bowed and every eye is closed, I don't do this every week, but today I really feel prompted to give an opportunity for anyone here. And today you've heard the message and you have never accepted Jesus as your Lord and Saviour. Or perhaps you have and you've walked away from him and and today you want to come back to him. I would love to pray for you at the end of the service. And I just want to give you an opportunity right now. Or no one's looking around. If that's you and you want to accept Christ as your Lord and Saviour, I can't guarantee you that life will be easy after that because it's not for all of us. But what I can guarantee you is that God will be with you and he will fill you with an unending joy and a hope for the future that no one can take away. And every one of us has the opportunity to receive Christ as our Lord and Saviour because he died in our place on the cross. And when we receive him into our lives, it simply means that all the things we've done wrong, that we deserve to be punished for, that we deserve to come under God's judgment for, are taken from our lives and they're placed on Jesus at the the cross who stretched out his hands and said, it's finished. I've paid the price for you. And so today, while no one's looking around, every head is bowed, every eye is closed, I want to give opportunity to anyone here And you can't say today, when you leave this place, that you're going to spend eternity with God, that you've never accepted Jesus or you want to come back. When no one's looking around, I just want to ask you now to invite you now to lift up your hands. 
And this could be the greatest moment in your life. Don't leave this place unsure. Yeah, I see the hand there. That's awesome. I see the other hand up the back there as well. It's wonderful. Is there anyone else who wants to join these two people today and say, yes, I want to start that journey. I want to be in relationship with this awesome God who's a life changer. So anyone else who wants to join these two people, just lift your hand now. Let's stand to our feet. That means all of us. I thought maybe I was speaking in tongues or something. Um, let's all stand to our feet. And I want us to pray a prayer together for those that have just given their life to the Lord. And if you've already made this decision to follow Jesus, then pray this as a reaffirmation of your own faith. So let's pray. You pray after me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for what you did when you sent your son Jesus to die in our place on the cross. We thank you for his sacrifice. We thank you for the blessing in our lives as a result. Lord, we declare that you are the saviour of our lives, that you are our friend and our comforter. Lord, we repent of the things we've done wrong. We ask for your forgiveness. We pray that you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that we would know that we are yours and that we can live for you. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.